Okay, so over my previous two talks, I've been exploring aspects of the Buddha's core teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And because this is such a vast teaching, really a whole lifetime of practice, I've been focusing on just one part of the First Noble Truth, the part where the Buddha summarizes that First Noble Truth, the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, as being, quote, the five aggregates subject to clinging. So as a quick reminder, these five aggregates are material form, which includes our physical bodies, feeling tone or vedana, perception, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. And the Buddha singled out these five aspects of our experience because there are ones that we tend to either cling and hold on to or the opposite, to resist and reject. And these reactions of clinging and resisting almost always reinforce an unconscious identification with that experience, taking it personally, using it to construct a fixed and solid static identity, me, mine, who I am, which only strengthens the suffering. So the more clearly we see the suffering of clinging, the more motivated we are to release it, to let it go, let it be, and accept experience just as it is. So I've been taking that summary of the five aggregates and the four noble truths and condensing in some ways, the whole of our practice into just these two fundamental movements, two movements that we can explore, not only here on retreat, but in our daily life too, these two movements of clinging and release. Release into ever-deepening levels of ease that lead ultimately all the way to nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So... In my last couple of talks that some of you are here for, I went into the first clinging aggregate material form in relation to the body in quite a bit of detail. So we explored contemplating the body in terms of its anatomical parts, then in terms of the four elemental qualities of earth and water and fire and air. And then contemplating the body in terms of the truth of its mortality, which might have been a bit more detail than some of you appreciated. So this evening, I'd like to move on to the second of these five clinging aggregates, which is Vedana, usually translated as feelings or feeling tones. And some of you might remember Caroline gave a morning reflection on this a couple of weeks ago. So Most of you know Vedana is a technical term, and it refers to just that bare recognition of any experience we can have as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, in other words, neutral, before it then compounds into a more complex reaction of liking, not liking, or not knowing. So sometimes Vedana is translated as feelings, but personally I find this confusing because in English the word feeling can also refer to our emotions. 
But Vedana is referring to something much simpler than emotion. It's just that very first hit of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral before it complexifies into an emotional reaction. And this recognition of feeling tone is an automatic function of our human nervous system. It's happening on a basic level, and we don't have any control over it. So every sight, sound, smell, taste, physical sensation, every mental activity automatically gets recognized as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Most of the time, that's happening just below the level of conscious awareness. In fact, I understand that it's the more primitive part of the brain, our reptilian brain, that's responsible for recognizing feeling tone. Which makes sense, because feeling tone is not that sophisticated. It seems to have originated from a time in our evolution when we needed to work out very quickly whether something was going to eat us, or whether we could eat it, or perhaps mate with it. So it's based on this fight-flight response. And it's, we've learned to overlay it with apparently more sophisticated reasons and rationales for doing what we do. But if we look more carefully, at least speaking for myself, in my own practice it was quite humbling to learn about Vedana and to recognize it playing out in my own experience. Before I had any understanding of Vedana, I had this belief that I was a relatively sophisticated human being, making informed, intelligent choices in relation to my complex life. But then, when I started to pay attention to Vedana, I realized that actually I'm not that different from an amoeba, just like a single cell amoeba tends to blob towards what it likes and blob away from what it doesn't like or nothing much is going on, just stay stuck. I'm pretty much doing the same. In fact, probably the main difference between me and an amoeba is that just the delusion that I am a highly functioning organism. So I might be exaggerating slightly, but check it out. If you think back even over the course of today, some of the choices you made, if you investigate them with mindfulness, chances are that most of what you did, if you go down deep enough, was motivated on this very basic level, either by moving towards pleasant, moving away from unpleasant, or if there was mostly neutral experience, Chances are you try to find something more stimulating. So there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about this experiencing of Vedana. It happens automatically, as I said, as a normal function of our nervous system. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't actually stop it from happening because it's yet another aspect of our experience that we're not in control of. But, and this is a big but, even though it's mostly unseen, Vedana has a very powerful effect on how we live our lives. Because when it's clung to, it's really the basic building block of all our reactivity. And when it's released from, it's the gateway to freedom. 
So I'd even go as far as to say that every one of our problems and every one of the world's problems comes from our inability to relate skillfully to Vedana. So paying attention to Vedana has an ethical dimension to it, which is probably why the Buddha put so much emphasis on such an apparently simple aspect of being a human being. Because when there's no mindfulness, these three feeling tones tend to strengthen the three core afflictive energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is happening moment to moment, but it's also happening over the course of our whole lives. So each time we react unconsciously to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral stimuli, we're strengthening neural pathways. So pleasant feeling tones strengthen wanting, which becomes habitual and turns into the habit mind of greed. Unpleasant feeling tones strengthen not wanting. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into hatred or aversion. Neutral feeling tones tend to strengthen ignoring or not knowing. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it strengthens the habit mind of delusion or ignorance. So the more unconsciously and habitually we react to feeling tones, the more greed, hatred, and delusion become the default setting of our minds. And there's a biological basis for this in the neuroscience understanding that neurons that fire together wire together. And we strengthen that wiring even further by not seeing Vedana for what it is and unconsciously identify with pleasant and unpleasant Vedana and allow these basic reactions to affect our thoughts, our emotions, our moods and mind states, and then take those to be me, to be mine, to be who I am. So to give a fairly simple example from my own life of how not recognizing Vedana can lead to identification with it. This happened a few years ago now when I was living in Australia and I needed to go for quite a long drive across the state to another city. And I noticed that I'm feeling compelled to tell you right now that although I was living in Australia, I'm from New Zealand because I want to avoid the unpleasant feeling tone of being identified as an Australian. So that's a little sidebar (laughs) So back to the story. I didn't at that time. In fact, I've never owned a car, so I borrowed one from a friend. And it was the middle of summer, so I set off early in the morning. The day was just pleasantly warm, and I was enjoying the novel experience of driving through the countryside in a new and comfortable car. And I was feeling like I was in a pretty good mood. Time passed, and I got stuck behind a long line of trucks. And I noticed that the one in front of me had a bumper sticker that immediately triggered some irritated and judgmental thoughts. And these thoughts took me by surprise because I'd been enjoying the day, and yet suddenly there I was, all grumpy. And then I noticed the day was getting hotter, and I remember this car had air conditioning, so I turned on the air conditioning. 
And a few minutes later, I was really happy. And I was driving along, the landscape had a stark beauty to it, and I felt really grateful to my friend for lending me his car so I could enjoy the drive. And then I, thinking of my friend, I remembered how he'd said to really be careful with the air conditioning because it could affect the fuel economy. So I thought, okay, I'd better turn the air conditioning off now. So I did. A few miles later, this wave of aversive thoughts came up, and I started thinking about how uptight my friend was about his possessions, and this proliferated into all kinds of other low-level irritated thoughts, and I remember thinking, wow, I'm so grumpy. And then, without thinking, I turned on the air conditioning, and a few minutes later, I was happy again. All the grumpy thoughts vanished. I was enjoying the drive, the landscape, appreciating my friend's generosity. Maybe it was obvious to you what was happening, but it took me a surprisingly long time to see that this cycle of grumpy, happy, grumpy, happy, grumpy, happy was totally driven by the unpleasant feeling tones in the body of getting too hot. Not seeing them, mind would get grumpy, I'd turn on the air conditioning, mind, body would cool down, I'd be happy, and so on and so on. And I still couldn't quite believe that my moods, my sense of who I was, was changing so quickly in relation to just a few degrees of change in the temperature in the car. But over the course of that long drive, it happened enough that it was totally clear that that was actually what was happening. So the Buddha was very clear about the need to see how these feeling tones condition greed, hatred, and delusion when there is no mindfulness. And the crucial first step in getting out of that trap is to bring wisdom to our relationship to Vedana, to recognize with mindfulness where, when, and how this reactivity is happening so that it can release and we can experience ease and peace and freedom. Which sounds simple, but easier said than done. So I'd like to take a little bit of time now just to explore some of the common ways that we tend to get caught by each of these different feeling tones and some ways we can develop a more skillful relationship to them. So first, unpleasant Vedana. We can train in recognizing Vedana as close to the source as possible before it compounds into any reaction of not liking. So you might even try that right now, just to see. Keeping it simple, staying with the body. Is there any physical sensation somewhere in the body that might register as unpleasant? Maybe the body's feeling heavy and drowsy. Perhaps there's some grumbling sensations in the belly from having eaten too much or not enough at supper. Or perhaps some grumbling sensations in the mind about having to notice unpleasant Vedana. Just take a moment, see for yourself. Don't overthink it. Just stay with that immediate, perhaps subtle hit of unpleasant. And 
Most people find it relatively easy to recognize unpleasant feeling tone, partly because, again, as neuroscience has discovered, our minds have what's known as an inbuilt negativity bias. So as Rick Hansen famously describes it, our minds are like Velcro for what's unpleasant and Teflon for what's pleasant. In other words, painful experiences tend to stick in the mind and beneficial or pleasant ones barely even register, perhaps slide right out of awareness. So coming back to this framework of clinging and release, when there's no mindfulness, we tend to get caught in reactivity, remembering that the term clinging can also refer to resisting or rejecting. Any energetic movement away from unpleasant Vedana, conditioned by hatred or aversion. And hatred is an umbrella term that includes all forms of anger, all forms of hatred, all forms of fear, from the most intense all the way through to the most subtle. So, for example, reactions such as irritation, frustration, rage, blame, resistance, dislike, loathing, judgment, anxiety, fear, and so on. Quite a long list, but you get the flavor. So just to make the point that aversion is itself unpleasant, so the initial unpleasant feeling tone tends to condition unpleasant reaction, which conditions more unpleasant emotions, further unpleasant reactions, and so on. And we get caught in proliferation, spinning out more and more suffering through our unconscious reactivity to that initial unpleasant stimulation. So there's a well-known sutta most of you probably know where the Buddha pointed out this tendency to enhance our own suffering. It's a teaching known as the second dart or second arrow. So I'll read you some of the actual words, but I've made the language gender neutral. So it says, when an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve. They lament, beat their breast, weep, and are distraught. They thus experience two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It's as if a person were pierced by a dart, and following the first piercing, they're hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. It's similar with an untaught worldling, When touched by a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve, they lament, beat their breast, weep, and are distraught. So they experience two kinds of feeling, a bodily and a mental feeling. In real life, though, most of the time, we don't stop at two darts. (laughs) We add five or ten or twenty or fifty to that original wound. So what's the antidote to all that suffering? In the Sutta, the Buddha goes on to contrast the reactivity of the so-called untaught worldling with the non-reactivity of the well-taught noble disciple. So the untaught worldling has no meditation training. And it's this meditation training that's the key 
in supporting our capacity to not react unskillfully. And for most of us, it's definitely a training, which is perhaps why the Buddha devoted a whole section of the Satavatthana Sutta just to cultivating mindfulness of feeling tone, of Vedana. So the first section there, I'll like to read it to you again with gender-neutral language. It says, And how, practitioners, does one in regard to feeling tones abide contemplating feeling tones? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling tone, one knows, I feel a pleasant feeling tone. When feeling an unpleasant feeling tone, one knows, I feel an unpleasant feeling tone. When feeling a neutral feeling tone, one knows, I feel a neutral feeling tone. So the idea is just to stay with the immediacy of the Vedana without letting it unconsciously fuel even the most subtle traces of liking, disliking, spacing out which can lead to greed, hatred, and delusion. And this is very different from our usual reaction to unpleasant feeling tones. Often, again, if there's no mindfulness, our default strategy is to chase after some kind of pleasant experience to get rid of the unpleasantness. But this strategy is only ever partly successful because of the truth of impermanence the pleasant experience doesn't last. And before too long, unpleasant Vedana comes back and we have to go off again in search of something pleasant as an antidote. And the big drawback of this binary push and pull from unpleasant to pleasant and back again is that it keeps us trapped in an addictive relationship to sense pleasures. So in the same sutta, on the second dart, the Buddha goes on to say, Having been touched by that painful feeling, they resist and resent it. Under the impact of that painful feeling, they then proceed to enjoy sensual happiness. And why do they do so? An untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. Then, in one who enjoys sensual happiness, an underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie their mind. They do not know, according to facts, the arising and endings of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. In one who lacks that knowledge, an underlying tendency to ignorance comes to underlie their mind. And when they experience a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, they feel it as one fettered by it. They are fettered by suffering. This I declare. So most of us could, I'm guessing, give examples from our own lives of unhealthy ways that we've related to unpleasant experiences that led to aversion, to greed, to ignorance, and so on. On one level, pretty obvious. But what I'd like to highlight in that passage is the Buddha's phrase about the gratification, the danger, and the escape in relation to these feelings. 
And this phrase, gratification, danger, and escape, appears quite a few times throughout the suttas. And to me, it's evidence of the Buddha's pragmatism because he's acknowledging, yes, there is gratification to be had in sense pleasures. There is something that uh, we get some gratification from. And in my own practice, especially in those times when somehow I just keep getting caught in something that intellectually I know isn't healthy or useful or skillful, this framework of the gratification, the danger, and the escape can be a useful inquiry. So just to ask myself, what's the gratification here? What is keeping me hooked? So this worked in one example when I was working with a painful conflict from the past that just kept coming up over and over and over again. And I would ask myself, what's the gratification with this? And I could see that my mind was getting caught and I just want to be right. So what was being gratified was this identification with a sense of self, the one who was right, the one who was definitely not wrong, the one who was strong, the one who was not a victim and so on. So there is gratification to be had from sense pleasures. And when we can see that gratification clearly, sometimes it's easier to let it go. But in our ordinary lives, most of us automatically tend to reach for all kinds of different sense pleasures when things get painful. So just a few basic examples. Pick up a glass of wine or eat a tub of ice cream or swallow a handful of painkillers or call a friend, take a long nap, go for a run, walk the dog, hug our partners, go shopping, binge watch TV, so on and so on. And these things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. But if we're unconsciously using them to escape unpleasantness, we're reinforcing that kind of dependence on them instead of learning how to meet difficulties in a way that leads to more ease and freedom. So this is the danger that the Buddha was pointing to in the analysis of the gratification, the danger, and the escape. If we just keep habitually chasing after pleasant experiences to get rid of unpleasant ones, we stay stuck in our comfort zones, And we never develop the capacity to meet life's inevitable challenges with more skill. So when the big challenges come, the old age, the sickness, the injury, the death, things that we were exploring last week, we don't have the inner resources to meet them, and we suffer even more. So again, That's the danger of sense pleasures. And I'll come back to the escape part later. So for now, I want to turn to the other side of these feeling tones and to look at how we habitually relate to pleasant Vedana. So again, the first step is to be able to recognize pleasant feeling tone when it does arise. So again, let's just play with that and see if right now in the body is there any kind of physical sensation somewhere in the body that registers as pleasant. Could be the softness of clothing against the skin 
or maybe a feeling of support from the cushion or the bench or the chair. Or perhaps a feeling of relaxing slightly as you breathe out. Again, not overthinking it, just seeing if you can recognize that immediate first subtle hit of pleasant. And if you do recognize something, just also take a moment to check, is there any trace of wanting it to last, lingering in it, holding on to it, maybe trying to enhance it in some way? And just to notice that kind of reflex without judgment. And if you do recognize something like that, see if you can also sense that subtle tension or tightness or contraction that comes when we do start that move towards holding on to pleasant experiences. Because this is how we distinguish between simply knowing pleasant as pleasant and when we've started to move into the core afflictive energy of greed. And we can recognize that sometimes in the body with just that subtle leaning forward, anticipating a feeling of being pulled towards something pleasant. So I do want to name, though, there's a big caveat in talking about sense pleasures and how they can condition greed. Because sometimes people misunderstand this teaching or simplify it to think it's about the Buddha saying we should never enjoy anything or that we should somehow try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. But this is a pretty serious misunderstanding because it's not the pleasant experiences themselves that are the problem. It's the relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. So again, pretty simple example. Perhaps at lunch, the cooks put out a pile of chocolate brownies on the back counter. And if I can take a chocolate brownie and eat it slowly and mindfully and notice the pleasant tastes and the textures and the flavors and so on, and then when it's gone, it's gone, that's fine, no problem. But on the other hand, if I see the stack of brownies on the back counter and immediately start counting how many people are in line before me and how many might be left by the time I get there and how many pieces I can take without looking too greedy and if it's possible to get the recipe from the cooks and so on and so on, all of that mental agitation is an indication that I've shifted from simply knowing pleasant as pleasant to getting caught in greed. And again, it's a simple example, but we can see that kind of template playing out in relation to all kinds of pleasant experiences through the day. So the relationship between pleasant experience and the tendency to move into greed is pretty straightforward. But what might be not so obvious is, for some people at least, pleasant Vedana can actually bring up aversion in the form of fear. And I saw this early on in my own practice and also in some of the students that I've worked with. So earlier I mentioned the mind's inbuilt negativity bias. And in some people this negativity bias is so well developed that they have a hard time even registering pleasant feeling tone. 
So then on top of that negativity bias, we often add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And it took me quite a while to recognize this was true for me in the beginning of my own practice, that I was actually suspicious of pleasant experiences. I saw them as unreal, untrustworthy, and conversely, that unpleasant experiences were more real, more true, and just how life is. And so eventually I started to recognize these kind of biases. And underneath them, another pretty deep assumption, and that was that Dharma practice was supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying something, then it wasn't spiritual. And I'm guessing that this came partly from my Christian upbringing, which in my experience seemed to equate any kind of enjoyment with sin. Now, I'm not saying that all forms of Christianity have that attitude. It's just how I experienced it as a teenager. And from that early conditioning, it fed an assumption that meditation is supposed to be hard work, uncomfortable, difficult, even painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong. I'm not working hard enough, or I'm not going deep enough, or I'm not seeing clearly enough. So because of that unseen attitude, I had a lot of resistance even to the idea that joy and enjoyment might be a necessary part of the path. So I share that just as an invitation to see you know, if any of you might have views or beliefs that might be coming up in relation to what real Dharma practice is supposed to look like or feel like. And even if you don't have that particular bias, it can be good practice from time to time just to tune in and to notice pleasant experiences, to begin to open to the full spectrum of experience and not just the narrow bandwidth that we feel more comfortable with. Or if opening to pleasant feels like too much of a stretch, then there's always neutral Vedana. So I'm just going to touch into neutral feeling tone now for the sake of completeness. Because in some ways, neutral is the hardest of the three to work with. Technically, it's known as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But that's a bit of a mouthful to keep saying, so I'll stick with neutral. And it's precisely because it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant that most of us tend to ignore this feeling tone most of the time. Neutral experiences aren't threatening, and they don't give us any pleasure. So usually it takes a fairly refined mindfulness to be able to even notice them. So again, let's just give it a try right now and just tune into the body and see, is there any physical sensation that might be neither pleasant nor unpleasant? You might notice areas of the body where generally nothing much happens. Perhaps the earlobes or the inner elbows, maybe the toes. Perhaps the temperature of the air against your skin, 
somewhere that feels neither warm nor cool. Or maybe if you pay attention to the breath, that change point from the in-breath to the out-breath, that slight sense of a gap or a pause might be neutral. So again, not overthinking it, but just recognizing what might be available that seems neutral. So one of the challenges with neutral is because it's neutral, most of the time we don't notice it, and then it very easily conditions the third of the afflictive energies, which is ignorance or delusion. Whereas pleasant Vedana pulls us towards what we want, gives rise to greed, unpleasant Vedana pushes away from what we don't want, gives rise to aversion, neutral Vedana can work in at least two different ways. If we don't recognize it clearly, if we ignore it, it keeps us stuck in not knowing, sort of disconnected from experience, just spaced out. But at other times, that same neutrality can push us into a search for more stimulation. We go after pleasant experiences if they're available. But sometimes, perversely, we'd even rather experience unpleasant experiences than stay with just neutrality. Because many of us are unconsciously addicted to the highs and lows of life. So the mid-range, the neutral, can feel foreign or maybe even threatening. And sometimes we experience this fear of the neutral on retreat, where in the relative lack of stimulation, we find ourselves replaying all kinds of dramas from long ago, or even inventing new dramas just to amuse ourselves, because anything is better than the subtlety of breathing in and breathing out. So we can see very directly in our own experience how these feeling tones condition reactions. And I mentioned how they can offer some short-term gratification and the danger that they can proliferate into greed, hatred, and delusion if they're not seen clearly. So now coming back to the Buddha's teachings on the gratification, the danger, and the escape... We finally come to the escape part. So I mentioned earlier my own unbalanced attitude to pleasant experiences, which was partly driven by how the Buddha's teachings were sometimes presented. And while it's true that the Buddha did warn us over and over again to not get attached to sense pleasures, What sometimes isn't highlighted as much is the importance of cultivating skillful mental pleasure instead. For example, mind states of calm, of concentration, of ease, happiness, kindness, compassion, joy, peace, and so on. And when we are able to access these profoundly pleasant mental qualities, Ordinary sense-based pleasures lose a lot of their attraction. We're much less likely to get pulled into unskillful behavior, and we're more likely to live our lives in ways that benefit others as well as ourselves. 
So the Buddha came to this understanding of the need for some kind of pleasure on the spiritual path directly through his own life experience. As most of you, I think, know, you're familiar with the story of the Buddha's own life, how he was born a prince, but became dissatisfied with his life of luxury. And he left the palace to spend many years wandering around northern India, exploring all kinds of different hardcore spiritual practices, trying to give his life more meaning. And most of those practices were fairly extreme austerity practices that were supposed to subdue the body, subdue sense desire, basically by tormenting the body. And it's said that the Buddha-to-be tried all of these different approaches to the utmost. In fact, he ended up doing it so much that he almost died. And it's said that he was in constant pain and near death before he finally realized that he wasn't actually achieving much. Unfortunately for him and for us at that point, he suddenly remembered a pleasant experience he'd had as a young boy. Apparently he'd been sitting under a rose apple tree in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, so the story goes. And he spontaneously slipped into the first jhana, meditative absorption, which is a very pleasant mental state. And when the Buddha-to-be remembered that pleasant experience he'd had as a child, he suddenly recognized that his fear of pleasure had become an obstacle to freedom. And he recognized that actually mental pleasure had been the missing ingredient. And it's said that not long after that recognition, he attained complete liberation, complete freedom of heart and mind. So in this passage, the Buddha makes an important distinction between ordinary sense pleasure and skillful mental qualities. And he recognized that the pleasure that comes from skillful mental states is a refined type of pleasure that actually supports the path to freedom. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of Vedana, he makes this distinction very explicit. So in addition to categorizing feeling tone as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, he also makes a distinction between what are known as worldly and unworldly feeling tones. So, so far, mostly what I've been talking about are worldly feeling tones. And these are ones that are generated by our reactions to ordinary, everyday life experiences. The pleasantness that comes from sense-based pleasure or the unpleasantness that comes from bodily discomfort or pain or the neutrality that comes from spacing out and not being fully present with experience. By contrast unworldly feeling tones are classified as unworldly because they're based on renunciation. They don't keep us orienting, oriented to addiction. So Joseph Goldstein translates renunciation as non-addiction, non-addiction to sense pleasures. So by this categorization, pleasant, unworldly feeling tones include, for example, the pleasant that comes from cultivating sati and samadhi, mindfulness and stability of mind. 
just a simple example. Unpleasant, unworldly feeling tones can show up as the fear or the misery or the despair that come at certain stages of the practice. Perhaps those times when we feel to be very far from freedom still. Or in the Christian tradition when they talk about the dark night of the soul, that might be seen as an unpleasant, unworldly feeling. Neutral, unworldly feeling tones arise from the skillful state of equanimity when the mind makes no distinction between pleasant and unpleasant, but instead just rests in a state of deep ease and peace. So the main difference between worldly and unworldly feeling tones is that unworldly Vedana tend to condition skillful mental qualities that lead in the direction of freedom whereas worldly feeling tones tend to reinforce our addiction to sense pleasures. So there's a lot more that could be said, but I'm aware we're running out of time. I just wanted to touch into this distinction between worldly and unworldly Vedana, because especially in relation to pleasant feeling tones, people sometimes express reluctance or even fear of opening up to those skillful states of heart and mind that are actually a fruit of this practice. And in some ways this isn't surprising because partly because of the societal conditioning that I was just talking about and also because, as I mentioned earlier too, we've often heard warnings about not getting attached to pleasant states. But in my own case, again, these warnings reinforced an unconscious belief that any type of pleasant experience was wrong or bad. And I had the wrong view that pleasant experience automatically leads to craving. And so in defense, I developed this, what I think of as attachment to non-attachment. And I tried to disconnect from pleasant experiences and felt guilty if I did accidentally experience any. This was early on in my practice, and it took quite a while to release that conditioning. So in case any of you may have similar misunderstandings, I just thought to close with a quote from Bhikkhu Analio, who's talking about the importance of joy on this path to freedom. He says, After his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that unlike some of his contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. The ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to discriminate between forms of happiness and pleasure which are to be pursued, and those which are to be avoided, but also his skillful harnessing of non-sensual pleasure for progress along the path to realization. Numerous discourses describe the conditional relationship between wisdom and realization on the presence of non-sensual joy and happiness. So based on the presence of delight, joy and happiness arise and lead in a causal sequence to concentration and realization. 
One discourse compares the dynamics of this sequence to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop, gradually filling the streams and rivers, and finally flowing down to the sea. Once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen, their presence will lead naturally to concentration and realization. Conversely, without gladdening the mind when it needs to be gladdened, realization will not be possible. So may we all experience this ever-deepening, non-sensual joy and happiness leading to realization so that our lives might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness, and the freedom of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.